Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to hour number two of Ron Seggy Today, live all across the USA and around the world on this last full weekend of the month of August. And on our show this hour will be Sean Levy. And Sean has penned a book about Jerry Lewis. It was three years ago, this past August 20th, that Jerry passed away. It doesn't seem that long, but it has been. He was 91 when he passed away, and it's a very enlightening book that I think you'll enjoy hearing about. Then a decorated military man, an author, and part of Fox TV, Pete Exit, will be joining us. Fascinating talk about his book. And then Jeannie Walden will be here talking about changes in the workplace and daily pay, kind of a new concept. And that's all coming up the second hour live with Ron Zeggy today. We're going to pause momentarily, but we'll be right back with hour number two. Are you drowning in debt? Are you struggling to make minimum payments? Did you know that on average, a household with at least one credit card struggles with over $15,000 in credit card debt? If this sounds like you, know that it's not your fault. Credit card debt happens to good people. Credit card companies lure you in with low introductory rates and low minimum payments. Before you know it, you're in over your head. National Debt Relief has helped thousands of good people just like you become debt-free with our Debt Reset Program that will dramatically reduce your debt down to a fraction of what you owe. Our Debt Reset Program is customized to get you debt-free in as little as 24 to 48 months with one low monthly payment. If you owe over $10,000 in credit card debt or even personal loans, call 800 974-9490. There are no upfront fees or out-of-pocket expenses. You don't pay a dime until we succeed. Call now to see how the Debt Reset Program can work for you. 800-274-9490. That's 800-274-9490. 800-274-9490. This is good news. Maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MediShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MediShare. Share. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans, for instance. And MediShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month, but you might save even more. MediShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs. And because of the current economic situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by August 31st and you can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 
833-34-BIBLE. We are back live all across the USA and around the world. You're listening to Ron Seggi today. And this week on the show, we are going to remember comedian Jerry Lewis. Now, a lot of people love Jerry, and then he had those people that didn't quite like him that much. But we're going to talk about it in this book that is penned by our next guest. And this past August 20th marked the third anniversary of the passing of Jerry Lewis. Joining us right now with the author of King of Comedy, The Life and Art of Jerry Lewis is Sean Levy. Hi, Sean. How are you? Hi. How are you guys? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. It's been 21 years since you wrote this book, has it not? Yeah, it came out in 1996. Since then, you've written books about Robert De Niro, The Rat Pack, Paul Newman. I understand now it's available where you can read it online. Is that correct, Sean? Yeah, it, you know, it, strangely, it was not an ebook until last year. Wow. It was around the 20th anniversary. The book was written long enough ago that ebooks weren't in the contract. Let's start off by this, okay? You did an enormous amount of research even before you met Jerry Lewis. Now, there is a very surprise ending to this that we'll talk about later. But the book starts out very, very complimentary, talking about what he has accomplished, his impact, entertainment in the world, and then it kind of deteriorates from there. But you did a lot of research, and now you wanted to talk to him personally. How did you make that initial step to meet a man who was very difficult to meet on a good day? Well, I wrote him a letter, put it in the mail. It was 1993, I believe, when I started working on the book. And I had email, but very few people did. And um, I got an address form and I wrote him a letter. And one day I was on the phone talking to someone and call waiting. Remember call waiting? Oh, came yeah. Through, and yeah. I click on the button and on the other line is Jerry Lewis. Um, and we started uh, having conversations and a couple of meetings pursuant to that phone call. Now, was he receptive to your call? Was he receptive to talking to you further about the project? Because he wasn't very receptive to people the first time around because he was always on guard using him for reasons that he wasn't particularly fond of. I think he was receptive. I mean, I mean, he he. he he reached out to me. He could have ignored my letter. Sure. And um, he invited me to meet him, and he made reference materials available. Um, he uh, told people who checked with him that it was okay to talk with me, that I was, you know, a good egg. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, he was he was suspicious, on guard, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also, you know, I presented it to him as, I am going to write this book whether you participate or not, but it would be a better book if you participated. So I think at some level he wanted to, you know, have some control in the process. And this really started off as a very good relationship, going as far as not only being nice to you, but making sure that he was nice to your mother during his concerts. He'd want to talk to her, was proud uh, to, to talk about the relationship he had with you to your mother, which made her proud. I mean, this started off as a real good chemistry between you and he, which was very unusual for him with another person. But it didn't end up that way, did it? No, no. You know, we had two long meetings on his yacht in San Diego. Um, His primary home was Las Vegas, but he kept a large boat in a basin in San Diego. And um, that's where I visited him. And after the first one, we really were... Um, collaborating in a sense, um, it's it's difficult to say 
what he expected of me because I think he was, you know, it was sort of like a poker game and he had cards and I had cards and um, I, I didn't know him really well at that point. Um, but he was, as I say, he was cooperative. He was, uh, you know, he literally mailed things to my home that I could use, you know, you know Xeroxed materials. Um, he was... He was great. The second meeting was almost the exact opposite. From the time I arrived at the boat, he was edgy. Um, uh, he made insinuations about me. And then after about an hour and a half, I asked a question that lit him up. And suddenly I was sort of, you know, I had in my face a screaming, you know, drill sergeant or, you know, football coach. Um uh, frankly, I, you know, I, I grew up in New York City. I'm, I'm used to a lot of aggression. I'd never seen anything like this, you know, not on screen. And it was uh, incredible because here's this guy, this, this legend, um, someone I grew up watching on TV, yelling in my face with a big red face. Um, and I left after that, and we had a couple of other encounters um, but I recounted all of this in the epilogue to the book because it seemed only fair. You know, I, I, I did so much research, and unfortunately, this was one of those lives where the more you learned, the ickier it got. Mm-hmm. And you would you would come across things, things that I couldn't say in 1996 when he was alive that I could say now that are really hair-raising behaviors and statements and, you know, major life choices that he made that, um, for legal reasons, we couldn't talk about at the time. Um, And as I learned these things, you know, um, the book took on a darker and darker tone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, You know, I I was obliged to tell the true story as I discovered it. And unfortunately, the more truth I discovered, the more, the more, um, yeah, the the best things about Jerry were kind of well known. His charitable work, his his his, his great film career, things of that nature. But um, the darker side was 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 not really revealed. And um, I had the kind of mixed blessing of being the guy who revealed a lot of it. Sean, did you walk away liking the man? Because, well, I have my own feelings about that, and I'll, I'll express them. But did you walk away liking him? You know, I I grew grew to admire him. Um, but I found him unlikable. I found him, um, uh, he was hard on people close to him. I mean, I don't even have to, I don't even have to explain my own feelings when, uh, after he passed, when his will, um, was filed in, in probate court in Clark County, Nevada, uh, it was revealed that he disinherited five of his six children. All of his sons from his first marriage got nothing from his many millions of dollars estate. And I'm a parent, and, you know, I had parents, and you wonder what what happens in someone's life and in their heart and mind to make them like that. It, um, is it, yeah, so is, he's, a, he's not necessarily the easiest guy to like. Is it, is it uh, I guess, proper to say, or is it accurate to say that his worst enemy was him? I mean, here's a man who had an unusual relationship with his own father. His father was very domineering and wasn't very complimentary to him. Uh, as you mentioned, he disowned five sons, and I mean disowned them. I mean, it was unbelievable what you said in their relationship with stuff. He seems to be a very vindictive, mean person. And what I never understood is that with all of the problems that he caused, that he was the cause of in his career, 
how he still maintained to be a player in the industry with everybody in the right positions knowing that if they hired him, he was going to be a pain in the neck. Well, you know, we can talk about him being a player in the industry, but after 1970, he only performed in about five or six theatrical films. That's 47 years. Yeah, that's true. So the bulk of his work was done in in the first uh, quarter century of his career. And then after that, I mean, he would make appearances, and there were, you know, a handful of films in which he had important roles. King of Comedy, the Martin Scorsese film, a film that was just released last year called Max Rose, in which he plays an elderly widower who learns uh, his late wife's secrets. Um, But, you know, people did stay away from him. I have a quote from someone in the entertainment business who told me that that guy has three sets of teeth. Mm -hmm. Um, And... He was difficult. He, he, he burned a lot of bridges and he stopped being a moneymaker. Yeah. His, his, his style, you know, times changed and his type of comedy, what he did was no longer um, attractive to audiences. And, you know, you can be a pain in the neck to people if, if you know, you're selling tickets, but when, when the, the ticket sales stop and all they have is a pain in the neck who costs them more than he earns them, you're not going to get work. It's, right. it's, it's a pretty simple formula. We're going to pause for a second, Sean. Our guest is Sean Levy. The name of his book is King of Comedy. It was written 21 years ago. It's now available, though, online to read. You have to read this, whether you are or are not a Jerry Lewis fan, because it's a fascinating profile of a very complicated entertainer. And the author tells it, warts and all. It's very well written. It's amazing, in fact. And we will be talking more about this legend when we return in just a couple of seconds. As we mentioned in the introduction, August 20th marked the third anniversary of the passing of this comedy legend, Jerry Lewis. And Sean Levy and I will be right back with more with Ron Sedgy today. As a mother, you don't want to have to worry about this bill is coming, but then she needs this chemo. That's a decision you shouldn't have to make. At St. Jude, a family never sees a bill at all. It's like the world has been lifted off of your shoulders. The treatment doesn't get any better than what you receive at St. Jude. It saved my life. It saved my daughter's life. It saved our family. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. As a mother, you don't want to have to worry about this bill is coming, but then she needs this chemo. That's a decision you shouldn't have to make. It's a huge burden lifted financially, and so it allows you to give singular focus to your child. I've never known a hospital that takes care of their patients so thoroughly. That was the first thing I was like, how are we going to do this? When they told us that we didn't have to pay a single bill, I was like, wow. They pretty much have saved us. It's like the world has been lifted off of your shoulders, and now your focus is supporting this child. There is not another hospital like St. Jude. The patient care is unmatchable. It saved my life. It saved my daughter's life. It saved our family. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. It's pretty amazing when you consider that seven years ago, we didn't have the treatments we have now. We cure 80% of children with cancer. Go back 50 years, we were curing 20 to 30%. This is the miracle story of modern medicine. We understand what makes this cancer tick. And of course, without donors from around the world, this just couldn't happen. There's one thing we're focused on, and that's beating this thing. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. 
Learn more at stjude.org. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. Rates, policy points, and availability vary by state. We are back live all across the USA and around the world. Our second portion of our interview with Sean Levy, whose first book was King of Comedy, which came out about 21 years ago. It's available now on eBooks. And we're talking about the life and times of Jerry Lewis. And this past August 20th would have been three years since the passing of Jerry Lewis. Sometimes we forget about all the money added up for MDA. Ed McMahon and I were best friends and partners for many, many, many years. I toured with Ed. We did radio shows together. He like a member of my family. And when he passed away, the McMahon family asked me to join them at the MDA telethon that year. He died in June. This was in September because Jerry was going to pay tribute to him. I was so disgusted with his tribute that the family actually walked out. I stayed there because his only tribute was, well, I want to remember my buddy Ed McMahon, who's probably up in heaven drinking or drunk by now. That was it. That same telethon, he brought the poster girl up and said to her as she sat on his lap with steel on both legs, nice gams. And then he, in front of an audience filled with kids, used a four-letter word between the break. I don't understand how he maintained a presence with that kind of arrogance. I really don't, Sean. Yeah, he. Uh, we're learning more about how to say this, men of his generation and, and the behavior that they uh, took for granted is becoming more and more exposed and decried in, in our culture. I mean, I think that, you know, when you're the funny guy and um, you can get away with a little bit more, in Jerry, there was always this desire to be acknowledged and appreciated and respected and loved because he felt like he had none of that as a child and talk to him about it. He was a funny guy. He was a big shot. He did come from a culture where, you know, speaking, you know, coarsely wasn't as penalized as it is today. And he was deeply insecure and thin-skinned. So you put all that together and you get a guy who behaves as you just described. Here's the thing that really got me about this. You talk about having friends. If you had a true friend, somewhere along the line, somebody would come up to you and say, hey, Jerry, you're not bankable anymore. You better change your attitude because nobody wants to get near you. And nobody apparently had the guts to do that. I mean, when, when you're at the top of the mountain or you are perceived to be at the top of the mountain because he really wasn't in the last few years, then I think knowing that you have somebody who's going to fly off the handle in a New York heartbeat, they're afraid to do that. The ABC television, show, which was done at the El Capitan Theater, which he bought, was a fiasco. It failed. Then NBC, in their infinite wisdom, picked up a show much like the ABC show, not learning any lessons from ABC and Jerry's failing there. I understand perseverance on behalf of the talent, but I don't understand 
the satellite people around him that kept on giving him these second breaks. I mean, tell the story about his refusal to rehearse with Lynn Redgrave and what he did in the middle of a play on Broadway during intermission by refusing to go back onto the second act when the audience was full. It was the late 70s, and he, you know, his film career had pretty much uh, evaporated. So he was on Broadway. He um, hells a poppin', a revival of kind of like vaudeville burlesque, you know, the, the, not the striptease burlesque, but the old-fashioned variety show. Right. And someone thought, hey, let's do Hell's a Poppin', which was a popular variety show in the 30s. And they got Jerry and they got Lynn Redgrave. Lynn Redgrave is, is a proper actress. You know, she comes from a family that's one of the, the, the great acting dynasties in, in the English language. And she had, you know, standards of comportment on the stage and, and in preparation and rehearsal and things like this. And Jerry would have none of it. And he was openly abusive to her, verbally, uh, physically dismissive, undermining her her you know cues and things like this it was a fiasco and it didn't last very long on stage either because in the late 1970s jerry was just not funny not in his life his work audiences didn't want to see it he made a threat that he wasn't going to go on because of that situation the mda telethon now he is of course reverend for raising all that money i always used to say that if somebody was hosting that show that the general public really felt close to like a johnny carson they could probably raise twice as much he was only recognized in the latter years in france he had an ongoing feud with uh, Bing Crosby one time because Bing thought he was going to pull a hairpiece off of his head during a uh, appearance in Vegas. He fired Judy Campbell, which, of course, was Sam Giacano's girlfriend. And he had a radio station that he bought that he had a studio in his home so he could interrupt the talent at any time to, you know, go on and on and on. His drug use, his very outgoing, womanizing, embarrassing his wife, Patty, at every juncture, ignoring his sons, just spoke volumes of the man. Did you happen to see, by any chance, Sean, one of the last interviews he did that was posted on YouTube that was done by probably a very small entertainment show and how he treated that reporter? That wasn't a small entertainment show. That was Variety Magazine. Oh, was it really? Okay, I didn't. I never. Yeah. Jeez, oh, man. You <laughs> now, gotta... he basically cold-shouldered the guy and terrible. gave him one-word answers. But I have to say, that was a terrible interview. They did a series of interviews with entertainment people who'd reached their 90s, Betty White, Norman right. Lear, Jerry among them, Dick Van Dyke. The questions were terrible. Yes, the questions, they were. The first question was basically like, so you haven't died yet. What's that like? But the other people, you know, those interviews were posted as well, and they found graceful or funny or patient ways to deal with kind of a dumb reporter. The other person could say, you know what, you're an impolite jerk, and there's your standoff. You know, my wife got a job offer from him one time while she was married to me, and when she told him, that I'm Ed McMahon's partner and she works in my company. He reneged on the proposal, which Ed said was probably the best career move you made, Claudia. <laughs> I mentioned to you in the break that I could talk to you for hours about this. I'm sure somebody's listening to me right now saying, geez, oh man, why would you want to talk about Jerry Lewis? It doesn't seem like you're a fan of his. As a child, my father being Italian, he was mad at Jerry Lewis, and I told this to Dino Martin one time because all he kept doing was interrupting Dean Martin, that nice Italian boy <laughs> that's saying, that's amore, you know? So he didn't like him from the start. I just didn't understand his talent, and I didn't understand his personal life and how arrogant he was when things were not going well. You know, when things go bad, Sean, you kind of be nice to people, you know? He wasn't. 
And you bring that out in this book. That ending that you do on the boat is absolutely phenomenal. I didn't expect that. It's like an Alfred Hitchcock movie. You didn't see it coming. I've had it quoted back to me by Steve Martin, Penn Jillette, Harry Shearer. Tom Hanks once told me that he was out to dinner with Martin Short and Paul Reiser. And Marty Short spent the dinner doing an impression of, you know, mature Jerry, not stage, not, hey, lady, not that Jerry, but the <laughs> telethon Jerry, doing impressions of that Jerry throwing me off the boat all night and had them in stitches. I was at Sundance Film Festival and, and met Harry Shearer. You know, I said, I interviewed you for my book on Jerry Lewis. And he turns to his wife and says, honey, this is the guy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jerry Lewis threw off the boat. <laughs> <laughs> what a legacy you have, Sean. <laughs> Very seldom in this entertainment industry do I pursue people to be on the air with me. They kind of come and say, hey, can we be on your show? I pursued you. You tell it like it is about somebody that probably up to the time of his death was afraid to tell it like it is. Well, thank you so much. And uh, 21 years is, is, is true interest in the subject. Yeah, so really. I appreciate it. it. Guest has been Sean Levy. He's penned a book called The King of Comedy, The Life and Art of Jerry Lewis. Even though it's 21 years old, it's available on ebook and there's more to come with ron Seggy today we are back all across the usa and around the world you are listening to ron Seggy today while well, our next guest the co-host of fox and friends weekend he's an author book back in 2016 a good book too i might add in the arena and he's a patriot he served in the united states army for 12 years doing tours in iraq guantanamo bay afghanistan earning two bronze stars and a combat infantry's badge and he's got a brand new book out right now that is fascinating. you got to get this thing called American Crusade, Our Fight to Stay Free. Joining us right now is Pete Hegseth. Hey, Pete, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm well, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. I was watching your podcast the other night, and I just couldn't get away. I mean, it is so good, and you hit all the buttons. Let's talk about this new book. It talks about the fact that the election of Donald Trump may have been a sign of national rebirth, but the left demanding globalism, secularism, mm -hmm. socialism, they've gone to all extents to ruin it. It's almost like you know, you're back in the 1800s in the Civil War. Yeah, you're, we're, we're, we have some irreconcilable differences right now. These are not your daddy's Democrats. Right. These are not patriotic liberals. These are leftists who have taken over the Democrat Party. We, the only choice is to defeat them. You, you raised the central question of the book, which is, was 2016 and 2020, if the president can win, is it the last gasp of a nation, of a country who can still win at the ballot box, meaning freedom can still win in the political realm? Or is it actually is it the last gasp, or is it a recognition that our, our days are behind us? And effectively, if Trump loses in 2020, we're handing the keys over to leftists who have rejected the premise of our country. Forget Joe Biden. He's the old view. He's the nominee. The new crop of leftists who come from the indoctrination camps of our schools and our universities in our culture reject things like capitalism, like individual freedom. 
freedom, like equal justice, replacing it with identity politics and social justice. They're antithetical to Americanism, which is the premise of the book as well. So we're, we're at one of those moments, and 2020 is the front lines. I worry about 2020, but not as much as 2024, because that's really <laughs> when you got an opportunity to come in there, because, you know, a lot of times the party doesn't stay in office for that many years. But let's go back for a second to the Democratic Party, okay? I saw a thing on Facebook the other day that had a picture of John Kennedy. It said, what happened to my Democratic Party? We all know that Ronald Reagan said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. They left me. What is going on? I mean, is there a Democrat who can actually save the party from this new agenda, the AOCs of the world? Because in discussions with friends and you know associates, they consider the President Trump being a problem. But they have no alternative. They don't want to say I'm for AOC. They don't want to say I'm for Biden. But they're criticized. They have no solution. What they consider a problem, but they have no solution for it. Yeah, they're people without a home. The solution they should find is to join the Republican Party or to support the get past their agitation with his tweets or his civility or his tone or the way he talks and look at what he's done. People do that, that I think he will be reelected. But your point about John F. Kennedy, I mean, he was a tax-cutting, pro-life, anti-communist. And now we have Green New Deal abortion-on-demand socialists who ultimately want to find reasons to defend the communist Chinese. Here's my worry about whether the Democrat Party can ever change, is that this is a party of their own making. Politics is downstream from culture and education. It's a lagging indicator. It catches up to where the culture is. And leftists have intentionally focused on higher education and our schools since the 60s. They seed the faculty, they seed the graduate students, then they seed the universities, then they push it all the way down. And effectively, you're teaching kids to not love the very country that they're in, that they're global citizens, not American citizens. Those kids become voters, and they become very demanding that it reflect what they believe, which is what was taught by radicals. And pretty soon, your old school Democrats are looking around and saying, I'm a person without a home mm-hmm. because I'm not with, AO, with with Comrade Cortez, but I don't know where else to go. A lot of people will hear our talk right now. And of course, you being on Fox News, you know, the Republican, we don't get too much into politics. The fact that this is so obvious, it doesn't make a difference if you're a Republican, Democrat, or an independent. That's right. This is so obvious that the Democratic Party, trying to be nonpartisan, they are just ticked off about what happened. And they're even more ticked off about it's going to happen again. It almost feels like the Joe McCarthy era, where they are just absolutely badgering day in and day out till they scare the hell out of everybody in America. Because like you say in the book, you have to muster and motivate fellow patriots to stand ready to defend. That almost sounds like mustering, like the Civil War. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm not calling for a civil war. I'm I know not calling that. Yeah. for violence right. um, at all. But what I am saying is now is the time to stand up and be counted. Right. In 2016, you know, a lot of people pulled the lever quietly, hiding their support for President Trump. Four years later, we know who he is, what he represents. You love him or you hate him, but you know where he stands on the issues, and he's proven it time and time again. If you're a supporter of the president, then you should be you should be just as proud to put on a red MAGA hat as anybody who's proud of putting on an Obama sticker or something for Biden. We live in a free country. Be proud of what you stand for. If they want to call you a racist or a 
misogynist or whatever. Let them call you that. They're just trying to intimidate you, and it shouldn't work. And the more they realize it doesn't work, the less effective they are. And that's why Trump scares them so much, because he doesn't let their criticism back him down. He's taught us how to fight. And I think that clarifies the stakes and what's what makes 20, it'll make 2020 so fascinating. It'll tell us a lot about where we are as a country. Oh, I can't wait. They keep on showing these national polls showing Joe Biden leading Trump in this election. How is that possible? Is it a tact that the Republicans are using to maybe not show that Trump is way out ahead and they don't want to have the Republican voters become passive and not say, I don't have to vote. We got this thing snatched. That's the only thing I can come up with because everywhere you look shows Biden really not up to speed. Terrible, terrible candidate. I, I almost feel bad for Democrats, if I, if, in, except I don't. You can throw every national poll in the garbage. They don't matter. Uh, our founders ensured that our elections were not natural. We're not a direct democracy. National numbers don't matter. We are a republic. We have an electoral college. You have to win a certain number of states together, and that is part of the absolute brilliance of our founders. They also notoriously oversample Democrats and independents that are lookalikes of Democrats. So you get these types of numbers. They get the numbers they want to see. These same polls said the same thing in November of 2016. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason why all the Russiagate stuff or the, or the the Obamagate stuff wasn't going to matter is because Hillary Clinton, in the minds of everybody, had a 99% chance of winning. Yep. So it was all going to be covered up. The swing state polls are the ones that matter. And right now, Donald Trump has a strong lead or very, slightly ahead in all the ones that matter. Run up the score in California. Who cares? Yep. Uh, what matters is what happens in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio and Michigan and Florida. And I know that's where he's focused. Let's go back for a second to Donald Trump considering you for head up the, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, yep. here you are a decorated veteran. And thank you, by the way, Pete, for your exceptional service to our country. I appreciate that. Why would some organizations actually try to block that? Many organizations. Anybody who takes on the status quo is going to get the heat and the anger and the fury and the hatred of that very status quo. And when I ran Concerned Vets for America, a vets group, we agitated really hard against the status quo thinking of the VA. We put the veteran at the center to say, why don't you let a vet choose? If they want to go to the VA facility, great. But if there's a great private doctor near them and they want to choose that, great. The dollar should follow them. It's common sense to mm -hmm. all of us, to everybody else, to the bureaucracy at the VA, to the government unions, and to the veterans groups in Washington who have long since lost their core mission of looking out for vets, those ideas are super threatening. And so they come out with everything they have to try to trash you and prevent you from getting in a position where you could implement those changes. So yes, when I was under consideration, it was very, very close up to the last minute. A ton of groups and people came out against me. And in my mind, that was a good sign for me because it meant you're on the target, not you're going to get along to go along, which is how Washington his work for so long. Pete, is there a Democrat that can save their party with this agenda that they have inherited from AOCs of the world? Is there somebody out there that sees the light? I don't know. I really, and I, I'm not trying to say that to be coy. The problem is, is the, the mob of their special interest groups, of their grievance groups, of Planned Parenthood, of the ACLU, is so powerful that it forces people into certain positions, even if they don't agree with them or believe them. There are some 
middle America Democrats who sound sort of populist tones, they're pro-life, they're pro-Second Amendment. Even then, they're forced to cater to the worst impulses of their national leaders. Plus, if you're pro-Second Amendment and pro-life in the Democrat Party today, you still have no home. I don't see it. And I don't I, I don't mean that to be uh, dismissive. I mean that to be concerning. Pete, I liked your book, In the Arena. I don't know if you know this or not. I'm sure you do, that President Nixon had a book of the same name. I just... I didn't find out till I named it, and then I saw it, and I've got nine. So I ordered Richard Nixon's book in the arena. It's in my library. American Crusade, Our Fight to Stay Free, and it's done by our guest from Fox News, Pete Hexeth. And again, I want to thank you for your service to our country, and please come back. Ron, I appreciate it. I'd love to. Thank, thank you. you. Our Absolutely. guest has been Pete Hexeth, and there's more to come live all across the USA and around the world. You are listening to Ron Seggi today. Money, money, money. Money. You gotta have it. When you need it, what do you do? If you don't have a rich uncle, call Lending Tree. With us, hundreds of banks compete for your business, so you'll get loans with competitive interest rates, and in some cases, with no closing costs. So here's the deal. If you need money, call us. Do you want to refinance your current loan? Are you 62 or older and interested in a reverse mortgage? Then call Lending Tree now. 800-634-1315. 800-634-1315. We've closed over $250 billion in loans. We know what we're doing and can help you. Call right now for a free quote. 800-634-1315. 800-634-1315. 800-634-1315. That's 800-634-1315. NMLS number 1136. All across the USA and around the world, you're listening to Ron Seggi today. Well, the new school year has begun in many, many cities across the United States, and students and parents are really facing kind of unique challenges during this crazy pandemic. And joining us right now is an expert at helping companies and employees adapt to new working environments, which is exactly what we are in. She was recently named Transformational Chief Marketing Officer of the Year by the CMO Club, has written several books and launched five companies during her fantastic career. Joining us right now is Jeannie Walden. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? And welcome to the show. Hi, Ron. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm glad that you are because we need you in these troubled times when it comes to the changes in the workplace. But what about the back-to-school challenges that a lot of people are facing that affect the fact that they have to work or be centered at home in their employee or their employer situations? Oh, absolutely. We know that everything is going to remain crazy for the first half of the school year, especially as we start to get into flu season. So everybody is creating different choices for school. The one thing that is consistent, our kids want to be back in the classroom. They want to be around their friends. They want to be around a sense of focus that they can really enjoy. They want to be around someone other than their parents for a change. They've spent six months with them, so it's time for them to get back in the classroom. However, it might not be the safest. So parents and employers are facing the ramifications of that. In some states, 
it's all online learning. In other states, parents have a choice. And in other states still, it is back in the classroom and we're going to see how it goes. What that means for employers is flexibility is the name of the game. Being able to support your employee, regardless of what their personal situation is, is going to be key to remain productive as a business and to keep your employees happy. See, I'm a firm believer that when you work from home, even prior to this pandemic, it takes an enormous amount of discipline because it's very easy to say, I think I'm going to stop here for a second and have a sandwich and watch a little bit of, uh, you know, family feud or something of that nation. How do not only employees get over that hump and saying, you know, I've got to put whatever hours that I'm paid for in creative and productive hours, and how do employers monitor that situation? That's a great question, and I think early on in the pandemic, employers were in a panic about exactly what you just said. How will my employees be productive, and how can I make sure that they're being productive? And I think they were quite surprised. What we saw in the first half of the pandemic was employees were more productive working from home because they moved into this kind of obsessive and paranoid state where they were concerned as everyone was losing their jobs that if they didn't work harder and work more diligently, potentially their job could be lost and that would be damaging financially for their entire family. So what we've seen in the last three months is that the average remote employer is seeing about eight hours more productivity from their employees on a weekly basis. It's like the employees have gone from work-life balance to work-life blend and now work-life burnout to the point where they're just blurring the lines completely. Employers are actually being challenged to remind people to take a break and to stop working at certain times of the day and let them know it's okay to maintain the positive mental health for their employees. So we're seeing a lot of employers step up to the table with unique benefits and programs, everything from offering on-demand pay so employees can have financial freedom to access their pay when they need it without waiting for payday, to online fitness classes to make sure that the employee's well-being is top of mind because you said it. People are walking by the kitchen and they're stopping every single time to get a snack on their way to their next meeting or on their way to get another glass of water. So the employees and employers are really challenged with trying to figure out how to make this productive and successful for both parties for the next three to six months. And considering that this is more the long run now and we're probably only halfway through this remote working scenario. You know, Jeannie, one of the things that I think falls into that category is a double-edged sword is that when you're working from home, you don't have the everyday interruptions you might have from just other employees. The other side of the coin that is a negative situation is that you also don't have the interaction and creative things by talking to other employees when it comes to the workplace and the work project, not talking about, you know, last night's movie. But you talk about the pay situation. That interests me a lot because as an employer, I want, I often think that if, if some, and I haven't adopted this program yet, that if somebody says, I need pay on Tuesday vis-a-vis Friday, that they can do that. I think that's a great feature for employees. How does an employer handle that when it comes to taxes and everything else? How does the bookkeeper for that company handle that when I need the money, the employee should get it? Yeah, well, if you use a service like Daily Pay, the 
company or the payroll manager doesn't have to change a thing. Mm-hmm. It's a completely seamless integration, absolutely no cost. The company does business just as normal, and daily pay takes care of everything behind the scenes so that there are no changes to taxation. There are no changes from regulatory or compliance standards. It really simply just makes the money available to the employee as they need it. And during the pandemic, we've seen that the household has been impacted financially. So oftentimes, companies are realizing, you know, their employee status hasn't changed, but the benefit of that pay is now supporting an entire household in a much stronger way than it had been in the past. So it's a very seamless integration with with no change management for a company and no cost. It's kind of a no-brainer right now. I failed to mention in the introduction, and I apologize for doing that, Jeannie Walden is the Chief Innovation Marketing Officer for Daily Pay, and that is relatively a new concept, is it not? I mean, I don't remember that when I was working for someone. I wish I had it. It's been around since 2015, so relatively new as far as the world goes, not so new in startup land, and we've seen phenomenal uh, increase in usage since the pandemic with incredible companies, you know, everyone from Kroger to McDonald's to um, Deco, just everybody is, is running to offer this to their employees because it really does help make a difference. And as I said earlier, the more personalized programs and choices employers can put in front of their employees, the better it is for the mental health of the employee, for the productivity of the company, and for the long-term loyalty of the business, which gives you a chance at making it through these crazy times. This is a plethora of information that I hope our listeners are going to benefit by. I certainly have, and I invite you to come back, Jeannie, anytime. Jeannie Walden is the Chief Innovation Marketing Officer for Daily Pay and a very well-educated and astute in the business world, especially during these crazy times as we enter the fall of 2020. Jeannie, it's nice having you here. Please come back. Oh, thank you so much for the invite. I will. I really appreciate it and love your show. Thank you so much and stay safe. You too. Okay, Okay. thanks, Jeannie. Bye-bye. Jeannie Walden. Wow, a plethora of information. We're going to pause for a second. There's more to come live nationwide and around the world with Ron Sedgy today. As a mother, you don't want to have to worry about this bill is coming, but then she needs this chemo. That's a decision you shouldn't have to make. At St. Jude, a family never sees a bill at all. It's like the world has been lifted off of your shoulders. The treatment doesn't get any better than what you receive at St. Jude. It saved my life. It saved my daughter's life. It saved our family. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. As a mother, you don't want to have to worry about this bill is coming, but then she needs this chemo. That's a decision you shouldn't have to make. It's a huge burden lifted financially, and so it allows you to give singular focus to your child. I've never known a hospital that takes care of their patients so thoroughly. That was the first thing I was like, how are we going to do this? When they told us that we didn't have to pay a single bill, I was like, wow. They pretty much have saved us. It's like the world has been lifted off of your shoulders, and now your focus is supporting this child. There is not another hospital like St. Jude. The patient care is unmatchable. It saved my life. It saved my daughter's life. It saved our family. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures. Saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. 
It's pretty amazing when you consider that seven years ago, we didn't have the treatments we have now. We cure 80% of children with cancer. Go back 50 years, we were curing 20 to 30%. This is the miracle story of modern medicine. We understand what makes this cancer tick. And of course, without donors from around the world, this just couldn't happen. There's one thing we're focused on, and that's beating this thing. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy forms and availability vary by state. That's going to put a wrapper on things for the show for this week, also for the month of August, for that matter. I want to thank you and all of our guests for being part of the past two hours. Our guests include from KC and the Sunshine Band, KC... Joey Patone from NSYNC, and now the host of Common Knowledge, former CIA agent John Seifer, actress and singer Mandy Moore, author Sean Levy from Fox TV, and a decorated military veteran, Pete Hegseth, and Jeannie Walden talking about daily pay. Well, we'll be looking for your company come next week when we are going to do it again live all across the USA and around the world with Ron Seggy today. Till then, I'm Ron Seggy, hoping that you have... Blue skies and green lights. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.